Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. It's September 7th, 2016, so it's time for the healthcare show. I'm your host, Christine Hargis. Todd Campbell, our healthcare specialist, is calling in. Todd, how was your Labor Day weekend? It was really good. Um, relaxing, you know, nothing too crazy. How about you? Mine was really good as well. Got to spend some time out at a lake in Maryland uh, with a bunch of friends. So it was good stuff. But of course, summer is pretty much come to a close, unfortunately. So it's always a little bit bittersweet. But with that uh, fall air rolling in, the industry focus team decided that this week's theme should be back to school. So yesterday, Vince Chen and Asset Sharma dug into return on invested capital as their vocab term on the Consumer Goods Show. And today, we're going to define the difference between biologic drugs and small molecule drugs, which is really important in the healthcare space. And then we're going to talk about some cash-related investing metrics that will hopefully be useful in all of your investing. So, starting with the more healthcare-specific of our two concepts, Todd, want to kick us off with an elevator pitch-style definition of a small molecule drug? Is everybody ready to go back to school? I mean, we're we're, we're there, right? I mean, we're ready to learn. Here we are, right? Are we are we ever really ready to go back to school? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. My son actually was just very sad this week because he had to return, and he's in middle school, which is always a joy. Um, oh, <laughs> for for those of us who can remember our middle school uh, days, still it gets um, better. I promise, all of our yeah, that's middle school listeners. Him. That's why I keep telling them. So it's, small molecule so, drugs, right? So there's there's two ways that that drugs are made. Okay, they're either made through a process of chemical synthesis where um, chemical bonds are broken or formed uh, over and over, and that's fairly repeatable uh, and very easy to duplicate. And then there's the other way of making drugs, which is through a biological process, um, where those drugs are actually created or derived from living organisms. Um, They can come from uh, human cell, animals, microorganisms, whatever. And those are far more complex. So you've got the less complex small molecules and the more complex biologics. And the way that I like to explain that is Think of small molecules kind of like the widget you'd produce in a factory. You know, once you know how to produce that widget in the factory in Detroit, you can produce the same exact widget in a factory in Mexico or in Asia. Um, It's much harder to do that with biologic drugs because of the living organism aspect. Exactly. And so there are some other important differences that arise because of how much more intricate your biologic drugs are. For one thing, they're much more expensive to develop. Um, That being said, this is an interesting part of the story when you get over to uh, creating generic versions of them. So we have this whole field of biosimilars that has only recently started to take some of the spotlight in the healthcare sphere. And these biosimilars are essentially generic copycat versions of biologic drugs, but they're a whole different class than your normal small molecule drugs that have been around forever. And cost is really important here too, because it's so much more expensive to make a biologic drug, it's also much more expensive to make a biosimilar drug. And so with that, you're getting less competition from these biosimilars. Right. Investors have to realize that, okay, this is, 
think about this like in the 90s. We had small molecule drugs where, you know, at the time, biologics really hadn't come onto the scene uh, the way that small molecule drugs had. Okay, the technology for biologics really advanced in the 90s and the 2000s. Okay, so most of the drugs up at the time were small molecule drugs. Easily replicable, remember, just like the widget. So when patents went <clears throat> were lost on those small molecule drugs, generic drug makers were able to go out and open up a factory in India or somewhere else and be able to create generic versions of those drugs that were essentially identical. And because of their ability to create those as identical drugs, um, they were able to <clears throat> leverage all of the research that had been done by the uh, brand name drug uh, as far as efficacy and safety and everything else to be able to get to the market faster without all of those costs that you mentioned um, that are associated with developing them. Now you've got fast forward to the biological end of things where so many more drugs, a larger proportion every year that are in development are these more complex uh, biologic drugs. And because when you, I guess, flip the switch, the patents expire and you want to try and start making um, copycats of them, because you can't copy them identically, uh, you need to actually do efficacy and safety studies that are pricey uh, before you can win FDA approval for them. And that's kept kind of a lid and slowed the, um, the access to them here in the U.S. So, if you were a drug maker, do you think you would prefer your lead drug to be a generic, or sorry, a, a small molecule drug that is you know, maybe a little bit cheaper to make, but will be exposed to competition kind of faster and at a cheaper price, or would you rather have it be a biologic with a little bit less competition risk? Uh, right, and that's that's a lot of the. I mean, you'd argue that. That's one of the reasons that so many of the drugs that are in development now are still biologics, because they are more complex, they are harder to, to, to create, and that could provide you with more insulation against competition down the road when patents finally do expire. Um, you know, you have to remember that biologic drugs are, you know, because of their complexity, some of the most expensive and pricey drugs in the world. Um, you know, oftentimes these drugs are used to treat uh, very common conditions, autoimmune disorders like rheumatoid arthritis, those kind of things. And yet they, they carry these, you know, $50,000, $60,000 uh, per, per person annual costs. So these drugs rake in billions and billions of dollars per year. They're obviously very big money makers for, uh, for drug, com drug companies. Um, you've got drugs like Humira, for example, pulling in $14 billion a year uh, as arguably the, the the planet's best-selling drug, but they're also extremely effective. That that's another thing that's worth pointing out here. You mentioned rheumatoid arthritis. That disease was transformed from one in which you are just managing the symptoms to one in which you can actually shoot for disease remission because of the capabilities of biologic drugs. Um, you kind of so you, uh, we also have, on the other hand, of that uh, psoriasis, which, so you have Amgen's Enbrel and Johnson & Johnson's Stelara. These are two biologics that treat psoriasis, but most biologics cannot be taken in pill form. In fact, I don't think any of them can that I can think of anyway. And that, that's because they're proteins. And so if you if you were to take them as a pill, it would be digested just like any other protein. So they're largely infused or injected. But if you can have a pill that treats the same indication, that's going to be preferable. So you look at Celgene, which has a small molecule drug called Otesla, that's taken via pill, and that's going to steal some market share. 
<laughs> yeah, absolutely will, and it is. I mean, they, you know, the projections for a Tesla are for it to be a multi-billion-dollar drug, and its you know sales are growing at triple-digit uh, annual annual uh, year-over-year growth rates. I mean, this, without a doubt, people would prefer to take a pill than than have to get in, you know the the drug infused or injected. Um, that being said, there's still a massive market for these drugs, and many of them are coming off patent. You know, Pfizer estimates that $100 billion in branded sales will come off patent in the next five to 10 years of biologic drugs. And as a result, they spent $17 billion last year buying Hospera so that they could become one of the leaders in this burgeoning or emerging biosimilars market. So, I mean, even if you start losing some amount of, of, of sales to these other um, small molecule drugs, drugs that are coming in the market, there's still a tremendous opportunity for biosimilar drug makers to, to go out and be able to hopefully win um, uh, over FDA support. And it's starting to happen. I mean, we've, we've had a few different drugs now win FDA approval. Uh, we have a uh, biosimilar to the multiple sclerosis drug COMEX-1, this one approval. We have a biosimilar to the anemia drug um, uh, Neupogen, that's one approval. And we also have seen a uh, drug from Pfizer uh, that is a biosimilar of Johnson Johnson's top-selling Remicade uh, win approval. It hasn't launched yet. So there are, there are a lot of approvals that are starting to, to flood in, and that has you know some people thinking that this could be a $20 billion uh, global market in the next five years. So as an investor looking at this blossoming early-stage market, what do you think is the best way to play it? You know, there's a few different interesting ways to play it, and I, I guess I'm not really sure which one is the necessarily the best play. You could go pure play with a company like Momenta, uh, which is a relatively small company that's working on biosimilar drugs, similar as MNTA, but you're exposing yourself to a lot more risk. You could go the other side of the coin. You could say, well, how about a Pfizer, $50 billion in sales and you know, obviously global distribution, and with Hospira now, um, potentially a, a leadership play in biosimilars. So that's, that's an option. And then you also have to consider that a lot of the companies that are working on biosimilars are actually the producers of these biologics in the first place. You've got companies like Amgen and Biogen who are also developing biosimilars um, because they, obviously they have the know-how over the last 20 years of being able to create these drugs relatively efficiently. So those companies are, are going to be involved in it too. Great. So our next lesson is something that applies to all sectors beyond just healthcare, and that is cash and equivalents. So this uh, elevator pitch here, uh, it's basically the very top line on your balance sheet. It's the most liquid thing on the balance sheet. It means everything that can be converted to cash immediately. So that could be actual cash, but it could also be your bank accounts and treasury bills that uh, or government bonds that have a maturity date of three months or less. Uh, it could be money market holdings, a whole bunch of things that fall into this category. But the thing to remember is that it is your cash cash and things that are equivalent. It is your things that are pretty much cash because you could turn them into cash so quickly. Right. This is not only is it the top line of the balance sheet, but it should be top of mind for investors. I, I don't think that there's a stock that I invest in that I haven't taken a look at the balance sheet to evaluate uh, how much cash, how much liquid uh, uh, money they have available to them. And that's really what we're talking about. We're talking about cash and equivalents. We're talking about the money that they can free up within 90 days or less and be able to use 
to take action, either via paying debt, paying costs associated with running their business, whatever. Uh, cash and equivalence is, I guess you'd call it, must-know news, if you will, for, um, for any stock, but it really comes into play as a particular interest for healthcare investors. Absolutely. One of the reasons that this matters so much to healthcare and why we're talking about it on this of any of the shows is because of cash burn and biotech. If you are a company that doesn't have a product on the market, you need to watch how much money you're spending every single quarter really, really closely. And the, the change in balance of your cash from quarter to quarter is explained in the statement of cash flow. And so cash burn is basically how much that balance is decreasing. This is really important because it can be used to calculate your runway, which is cash balance divided by cash burn. So, say you have a million dollars in cash on the books and you're spending 500000 a year, that means you have a runway of two years before you're out of money. And this can make or break a company. Right. And this is a huge issue for biotechnology companies. Previously, we were talking about the complexity associated with developing uh, many drugs, uh, biologics especially, and that complexity equals cost. Developing drugs is, is very expensive, and it, there's so much failure in drug development. You know, 90% of drugs that have been uh, begun trials in humans have ended up being discarded rather than making their way to pharmacy shelves. So the, the failure rate is incredibly high. The cost is incredibly high. So you know when you have a brand new biotechnology company that's going out there, they're not only investing you know big money, but they're investing it over a course of a number of years as they conduct phase one, two trials, and phase two trials, and phase three trials, and then try to convince the FDA to get to the market. And then, of course, they have to spend for the marketing and, and, the, and, and the feet on the ground, if you will, to, to build up um, awareness for that medicine. I mean, there's so many costs that are associated before you begin uh, generating commercial revenue from uh, from a drug, and historically, you know the way that biotechnology companies have have gotten that funding is that they've gone out to venture capitalists or angel investors, uh, and then eventually they've gone public and issued shares. And by keeping a very close eye on cash burn, uh, people can get a very good indication of whether or not it's likely that the funding is going to run out before um, trials are completed that could actually get the drug to the market. And thus, you know, that would force obviously these companies to go out and either do a, a dilutive offering and, you know, to basically dilute your ownership by selling more shares in the marketplace, or they'd have to go to banks or private lenders and borrow money at interest rates that may not be favorable. So you have to keep a you have to keep a close eye on the quarterly cash burn and, you know, make sure that you don't end up investing in a company that's gonna run run out of money too quickly. Right. And the devil is kind of in the details here too, because Cash could come from a variety of different places. You could have, say, a milestone payment coming in from from a partner company. Um, so definitely, you want to dig in and figure out where exactly that cash is coming from, and the different places that they hold the cash that is on the balance sheet. I'll give as one example here. Um, this is not a company that's of concern to me, but it is an interesting point to note, and we talk about it all the time. Uh, Gilead Sciences. So they their press release for the second quarter. Claims that they have 24.6 billion in cash, cash equivalents, and marketable securities. But if you actually look on the balance sheet and start breaking it down, their total cash and short-term investments line item is 8.8 billion. 
and that is composed of six and a half in cash and cash equivalents, plus another 2.6 in short-term investments. That is a big way off that 8.8 billion from the 24.6 billion in the press release. And the difference there lies in they have 15.9 billion in long-term marketable securities. So, whether or not that counts as a cash equivalent or not, it could go either way, but my point here in telling this story is that you want to stay consistent when you're defining your metrics just for the purpose of comparison, and you also do want to actually look at the balance sheet and figure out where is their cash? Where is it coming from? Where is it going out to on a on a quarter by quarter basis? Yeah, doing that will help protect you from a lot of risk. And, you know, this is a risky enough industry to be investing in on its own. We don't need to in, in, encourage even more risk. I and mean, we, there's the, the street is littered with biotechnology companies that burned through their cash too quickly and, and that caused significant problems for investors. You know, I can think of two right off the top of my head. Dendrion was one, they developed a, a prostate cancer drug called Provenge. Uh, and then the other more recent one would, of course, be Mankind, which developed an inhalable version of insulin, uh, but they were spent so much money that, you know, it's, it was it, the run, their cash burn was so much greater than any revenue that they ever generated off of that drug or, or have to this point. So, those are two examples of companies that historically, already in the past, have run into these issues. Are there any on your watch list that you think might be in jeopardy of running out of cash soon? A lot of attention in the past year or so is focused on uh, companies that are developing drugs to treat Duchenne's muscular dystrophy, which is a muscle-wasting disease uh, that unfortunately shortens um, patients' lives. And there's a, a massive need for new uh, drugs uh, to address this condition. And two companies that are working on those drugs are Sarepta Therapeutics and PTC. Uh, therapeutics. And those two companies have uh, drugs that work in, in very novel and unique ways. However, <clears throat> developing those drugs has been incredibly expensive. And both of those companies have, um, I guess, what raised my eyebrows, if you will, in terms of what their cash uh, outflow has been relative to what they actually have on their books. Right. So I guess the the lesson here is that if you're looking to give yourself a little bit more safety in your biotech investments, keep an eye on that cash burn. Todd or Mr. Campbell, Professor Campbell, thank you so much for all of your thoughts and lessons today. Folks, I hope you enjoyed today's episode and we'll continue to listen to the rest of Back to School Week. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. For Professor Gamble, I'm Christine Harges. Thanks for listening, and Fool on!